She thumps a cane and drinks champagne Just formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to V. Pack your bags and ready the coach because this episode we escape the whirlwind of London for the somewhat less whirly countryside with Eloise Bridgerton. Where is she going? To whom is she going? And why are her fingers always covered in ink? Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at BridgertonPod and we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod. Podcasting is hard and we need your validation. Also, please note, in To Sir Philip With Love, there is a depiction of mental illness, and we do spend some time discussing the illness and its representation during the course of this episode. If you are struggling, we strongly encourage you to reach out to Beyond Blue in Australia, who offer a number of support helplines and services. You can tell that I was reading at like three in the morning because some of my notes are ridiculous. I just Googled chestnut hair for the first time, chestnut brown hair for the first time and realized that I have chestnut brown hair. Um, You do. (laughs) And I didn't realize that my brown hair was the color brown that they're supposed to have. I thought that it was like more... I I, I assumed it was a light brown that they were talking about. But no, it's a darker brown. Yeah, so this is just to say I am a spiritual Bridgerton. Um, <laughs> I was like, I was like, it might be bedtime. <laughs> but uh, Rudy, do you have grey eyes we could drown in? Oh my yes. gosh. Um, I don't have grey eyes. I have what I would call hazel, but I don't know. But I do remember that there is some controversy about Eloise's eyes because a lot is made in this book of her having grey eyes. And in Mm. an earlier book, she has blue or green. It's one of it's it's a a continuity mistake and it's it gets corrected in later editions, blah, blah, blah. But it definitely was one of these things. Or maybe... And I'm just putting this out here. Maybe nobody actually looked close enough to drown before, so they were all wrong. But Philip understands. And clearly he is correct because oh he's God. the one who's willing to drown in them. So I'm Rudy. I'm Kate. And I'm Adele. Our book today is To Sir Philip With Love, first published in 2003 by Avon Books. The dedication to Paul reads... And also for Paul, this time because. It's always really because. Eloise Bridgerton is the fifth Bridgerton sibling, and now that her very good friend has married, she's decided to run away to Gloucestershire. (laughs) (laughs) Gloucestershire. 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 I mean, I know that Kate's right because I did look this up, but I just want you to know that the entire time that I was reading that fucking book... Every time the word came up, I was like, Gloucestershire. <laughs> That's how I read. <laughs> oh my God. To maybe marry a man she's been corresponding with for the past year. That man is gentleman botanist widower Sir Philip Crane. And don't worry, guys, he definitely has all of his teeth. So he'll probably make a good husband. Um, I think that this book would have really benefited from some of those gothic vibes like you're in a castle in the middle of nowhere it's rainy all the time like where were our like white dressed women in the middle of the night and unexplained howling from the hallways oh or like portraits where the eyes followed everybody there was none of that i think this book could have like really that are creepy and yeah be like there's none of that it's just about greenhouses they could have really leaned into the gothic, and I think I feel like Julia yeah. Quinn missed a trick here. Definitely inspired by Jane Eyre. Oh my god, I really love what you just said about this being a rewrite of Jane Eyre, where the wife in the attic is the idea of the wife as opposed to the actual wife. That's yeah, there's a lot there. That's really interesting to think about because you're right like Marina is a constant character through the course of the novel, even though. 
I mean, she's in the prologue as herself and then exists as a specter through the rest of the novel. Yeah, that's super, that's super interesting to think about. Uh, there almost needs to be a trigger warning on this book because I think it it's constant. I think it's interesting because JQ is a, she's a doctor or at least she went to medical school for a short period of time. I feel like she should be more aware of how depression can manifest itself. Like it's not somebody crying into their pillow every night. It's also not as constant as Marina's emotional state seems to be. Like there is not a single moment that is described of her being like happy, pleasant, upbeat. Like she occasionally smiled at her children, but like from Eloise's memories of her as a child through to Philip's memory of her death, like every memory they have is of her sad. It is this yeah, this like, idea that was introduced later on by Eloise that she never smi- she never laughed. And it almost sounds like she was like catatonic most of her life. Like it was quite alarming to me (laughs) like and the way she was as a child was kind of introduced later on by Eloise to sort of excuse Philip which I thought was super interesting because when I was reading it like I realized how long it's been since I've actually read it to the point where I started to play guessing games of like oh it's because this right so in my head as I'm going I was like oh we're getting clues that I mean, obviously, she was engaged to his brother. I thought that the brother had got her pregnant and Philip married her so that the children would be legitimate and also so his brother's children would be, like, potentially an heir, like, or child would be an heir. So that's that's the story. As I was reading it, that was the story I kept expecting. I kept waiting for that bomb to be, like, I kept waiting for that plot point to drop And it turns out those are his children. So I don't fully understand why he married her. Because they don't seem to have liked each other at any point. Well, I think it was explained in the book that he did it basically because she was expecting to marry the baronet and he was the new baronet. I mean, it's a weird game of swapsies, really. Although I think this wasn't that uncommon. Like, it's quite unusual that her family would have signed some sort of marriage contract that relied on her, you know, gaining the status of being married to the baronet. Can I take us right, right back to the start? On page 26, there's more proof that Eloise and Penelope are gay. Because <laughs> since, I, since I posited that theory in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton, I mm-hmm. went into this book, like, looking for signs that Eloise also loves Penelope. Like, she loves her back. Can you imagine, you know how he asks her, what were you running away from? I'm running away from the fact that my beloved is marrying my brother. Yeah. Has married my brother. Oh, so Someone has written that fan fiction somewhere and I feel like we need to find it. Look, if yeah. you have written that Recommendations, fan fiction, send it to us. please send it to <laughs> us. Because this is like right, right here on 26. She's talking about how you know she's happy for Penelope truly she was and she was happy for Colin too they were quite possibly her most her two most favorite people in the entire world and she was thrilled and she's really driving home how fucking happy she is that they're marrying each other but also later goes on to talk about how that like she had fully expected to remain a spinster along with Penelope and maybe they would live together and, and be in spinsterhood together and we all know what that's code for the two Spencer sisters who just happen to, you know. They're very good friends. Yeah. <laughs> bosom friends, bosom buddies. So, yeah, I just I just uh, wanted to, like, flag that. So as we go into this book, that's where I'm at, I, I'm, which means that, it, like, maybe I set myself up to fail a little bit because very definitely this is not, there's no plot mm. twist where, like, she ends up with Penelope. And she also doesn't end up with anyone that is Penelope-esque. No, and I think that this is a good time to talk about what kind of placeholder Philip kind of is. He's really literally a bit of nothing. He's He hangs out in the greenhouse and is terrified of his children. And 
I don't know, he's described as being sort of big and not terribly refined, you know, pleasant enough, but doesn't set our world on fire. He's a good writer after he does 8 million drafts of the letter. I found that but, endearing. I'm just going to say, like, I liked that. He I mean, made it's endearing, drafts. but it's endearing, but I don't know. I just never really felt like, like we ever got a sense of the character of who Philip actually is, except that, you know, he was a good guy because he didn't cheat on his depressed wife. But he did and try now- to sleep with her when she was basically catatonic. And he failed to mention that he had children in any of those letters. I mean, yes. I feel like I got a really strong sense of who Philip was. And this, like... Really? Yeah. I... Maybe it's just me. He's someone who hasn't had much joy in his life. So I, you sort of understand why he gloms on to Eloise, who isn't sad which is not not to say like a great characteristic of oh my god Eloise is amazing but if you know his whole life has been stuck in that estate being abused by his father and then basically finding it like not being able to pursue what he really loved because his brother dies and then he has to marry the widow like he's never done anything because he wants to so he's kind of shut that part of himself off perhaps it's not really sad but it's not really personality traits like oh i've had a bad life so i'm just not going to be a person or character with any personality traits whatsoever kate except- some of us, <laughs> for some of us that's all we got okay like <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will say I have re- read this a few times and I remember liking it a lot more than I did this time and I did listen to it as an audiobook and if anything it made him quite insufferable because I was really having to sit in his words a lot more. So when uh, he's being quite horrible to Eloise verbally, it really took a lot away from him. There's a scene probably at the two-third mark where he basically tells her he can't listen to her anymore like she's always talking and the sound of her voice is too much and she's just got to shut up basically and all she's doing is asking him to engage with her in a way that isn't his penis going into her so that's when they married right (laughs) like yeah yeah and I remember the scene because I made a note of it as well yeah. Um, yeah, I I definitely want to come back to that, but I feel like there's so much that goes on before we ever get to that point. Well, let's just go yeah. through like the plot. So we have Eloise who flees London, um, you know, to avoid all of her feelings and how she feels about the engagement or you know possibly Penelope, um, and then she arrives at this dark castle where he like. He, he literally doesn't know what to do with her. He He's like, we don't have guests. I'm just going to leave you, like, hanging out in the front <laughs> hall because I don't know what to do with you. But then his kids come. Then his kids come, don't they? Aren't they the next thing that happened? Yeah, well, she, she forces him to deal with the fact that they are causing a ruckus upstairs. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't want to because his, uh, like, his whole approach to dealing with his children is avoidance. And mm. they are doing this thing where they are, like... They're misbehaving to get attention. Eloise, in her like infinite wisdom slash violet channeling, recognizes it immediately. She's like, ah, oh, of course, they are misbehaving because they want your attention. Oh, she's really funny because I feel like Eloise in this book became violet. Like she moved on from being Eloise to, oh, I have kids now, so I'm just going to turn into violet and be like her mother all over again which i mean is an ongoing fear of mine that we all turn into our mothers eventually but it really happened and it happened fast like she went from being sort of snarky and you know talking too much and being so sharp and so smart to being you know super maternal and all about the kids and I think she kind of went from being a manifestation of like Amanda and Oliver and that mischievous kind of underling around the skirts to being Violet the moment she sort of stepped foot at the cranes. Like it was, it was a weird transition. 
Mm-hmm. Here's a question that I had, though, because several times they mentioned eels in beds. And I'm like, how prominent were eels and how easy <laughs> is it to catch eels? Like, I'm actually super interested in where do eels live? I thought, I don't know. I mean, the only they thing can't... I know about eels are the scary ones that oh, live in, in the, the bottom pond, of the ocean. Right? Can you get <laughs> eels in freshwater ponds? Yeah. Is that yeah. a thing I need to worry about going near ponds now? Can't be worried about that in any kind of river. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I don't know. I didn't worry about it before, but clearly I'm going to worry about it now. As someone who grew up skiing on a freshwater lake, yeah, hell there are like eels freaking everywhere. That's why I was terrified to like be out under the water for too long. They actually, I want to say they're like quite curious. Like they do actually come up to you if you are on yeah. the edge of like a jetty or whatever. I really, I know, you know, like the crocodiles and the sharks, fine. I didn't realize I had to worry about eels as well. I don't think Amanda and Oliver were that bad. I mean, they're annoying. They would drive me up the wall, but I don't think they were like genius muck raisers. You know what I mean? Like they just don't. Which is why I think Eloise being able to handle them made perfect sense. Like gluing the governess's hair to the bed sheets, like horrible, but like. Not not genius level mischief, really. Like really standard, straightforward mischief. But you think he would have questioned why the current nanny, who we later find out has been abusing them, has not had anything happen to her? You think that would have raised some flags? They don't like her. They told him they don't like her, but she stayed free of an incident. But, yeah, I wonder why they didn't get, try anything with her. Because they're scared of her. Oh, uh, maybe. I think it sort of lines up with a lot of what we're talking about, like the consistency of the characters from start mm-hmm. to finish, like uniformly, is a little bit all over the place. But I didn't find them annoyingly precocious. They were annoying at times, but I felt like it was kind of earned. Yeah, actually, it's funny because I don't normally like kids in romance novels. No, I, neither do I. It's not something that I seek out. I don't like secret baby. I think, like, Oliver and Amanda are, are great, and I really loved that the Bridgertons sort of adopted them into the family at the end, and there was no question that Violet was their grandmother. And I, I liked that conclusion and that Eloise sort of went... I liked that Eloise kind of called herself hers but I didn't like it when when Philip would call her their mother so it was this weird disconnect for me like for him it was so much about having a mother for his children so he didn't have to worry or think about how he was being shit all that often so it was a weird sort of contradiction for me (laughs) well yeah the the motivations for both of them are kind of are quite interesting because Eloise Eloise leaving London and going to this estate to meet someone that she's been writing letters to for a year like it is solidly out of character for her there is no way that she did not understand the full implications of what she was doing and I actually don't really we're given a reason for why she doesn't give him a heads up and time to organize oh, a so chaperone. Oh, so she can change her mind. Yeah. yeah. So we're given that reason. I She's was like, it's that. so solidly out of character. And I was I was really surprised that she hadn't, like, roped Francesca into her, like, again, like, Francesca has recently been widowed, but, like, they're, they're so tight. So I, I was kind of... It was like, it's bizarre that Eloise, who has these really strong connections with her sister, with Penelope, she's not enlisted either of them to help her with this, like, grand scheme (laughs) that Uh, really puts her at risk, like, in every possible way. (laughs) You're completely right, because in the first few novels, you cannot even distinguish Eloise from Francesca. They are just together yeah and they don't really have different personalities to the point where I thought they were twins but they're not (laughs) (laughs) I don't know actually I Um, bought it I buy and I still buy it she's (laughs) 
her best friend, her, the pr- best friend she's in love with has married somebody else. So, she, you know, she gets a little bit desperate, a little bit reckless, <laughs> a bit overwhelmed and all up in her feelings. And, you know, like, who doesn't flee that scene? I guess I just expected, well, like, I was thinking about it and I was like, the the most logical and the most Eloise way to have done it was to line something up with Francesca where she has told everybody that she's going to stay with Francesca and Francesca covers for her while she does this thing. So Francesca knows the truth and no one else does. And I, I, that, yeah. And then you can still have the brothers figuring it out and having a full on fucking meltdown, which was just, it's straight (laughs) up. It is one of the best parts of this book. book. (laughs) I actually think the brother interactions in this book are the best thing in the series. I liked Benedict again. And poor Gregory, who just wants to be a grown-up and like is being treated like a child at every turn. To add to my theory that Colin and Eloise are actually the same person and that's why it is not just not just okay to ship Penelope and Eloise, but it's actually like fucking it's the right thing to do is that (laughs) (laughs) Eloise is a secret writer um with her letters and everything because she is keeping up an insane level of correspondence with people and no one seems to know what she's writing or who she's writing to and all that kind of stuff and Penelope is the one who finds the letter that kind of reveals where she is and that she's with Philip and like oh, where to go, right? And it's much like much like Penelope is the first one to find and read Colin's secret diaries of secret writing. And like, yeah. So they're the same character. Like, they're the same person. <laughs> and actually, Man. like, yeah. Doing a psychoanalytical reading of this text would be super fun. Right? Like, oh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, like, stretching way back to my undergrad degree, but I've got, like, Colin is the id and Eloise is the ego in my head right now. And, oh, yeah, we could, we could, <gasps> I could make this work. I could write a very good fourth year essay on this is all I'm saying. I'm going to, one day I'm going to need you to explain that to me because I have a really <laughs> basic understanding of the id and the ego. <laughs> like... <laughs> But I I definitely, (laughs) I do definitely want that paper, please, Kate. That would be awesome. (laughs) I'll just whip it up in my spare time. Yes. Um, Once we get a Patreon, that'll be the first thing that we offer. (laughs) That's like top tier though. Like you got to be spending like 50 bucks a month to get that. Like this is academia coming at you. (laughs) Like, make it rain, people. Make yeah. it rain. And I will deliver some Freudian yeah. thoughts for you. Like, because how much do you spend on an academic journal? Like, $100. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been a student in a long time. And even then, like, you get <laughs> you get university access. So it's fine. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, that's all I wanted to say on that. <laughs> I really like Sophie. She's pragmatic. She's like, she's just really smart. And it feels like Julian Quinn doesn't like her that much. I don't think she's necessarily acts the way that they talk about her. Like, I don't think she's more chatty than any other character we kind of have in this series. They talk about how direct she is. I don't think she's any, like, Philip is much more direct than she is. I guess it's a gender divide. Yeah, I actually really like Sophie. I just don't like Philip all that much. Shit. Did I say Sophie the whole time? Yeah. You did. And I was really confused at first and then I was like, oh, she's got the wrong name. (laughs) I've always liked Eloise through Penelope's book. I liked Eloise in this book. And I, I liked her up until she sort of arrived at Philip's house and then morphed into Violet, which... I mean, it's a it's a thing that makes sense. She knows what to do in that situation. She's a fixer. She steps in and she, you know, takes care of things and takes over. And I don't know. I just felt a little at, by the end of it because, and I think it may bleed into how I didn't feel that 
Philip was ever really a character beyond Eloise's husband. But I felt like Eloise sort of didn't get what she deserved. Like at one point, Philip is like, shut up, shut up already. And he's like, this relationship is perfect because you're not sad and you don't get to say anything because you haven't been with a sad person. And I was like, so I don't okay, (laughs) friend, just because you were in a bad relationship earlier doesn't mean that Eloise is not allowed to raise points about how this relationship could be better. And like, and this is the thing about Marina being that constant wife in the attic where she's just hanging over them all the time. And Philip just fucking needs to visit a therapist and get the fuck over himself. So he is not going to be toxic to the next woman he gets in a relationship with, who, thanks to Regency England rules, has to marry him and be stuck with him for the rest of their lives. If you think about it, it's not that he hasn't just had sex in eight years. He hasn't really talked to anyone in a very long time because he clearly doesn't have a relationship really with his staff. He refuses to talk to Eloise, probably didn't try with Marina, and just ignores his children. So what the hell? Like, he has no relationships, basically, when we come upon him. Except so his interpersonal skills are, like, nil. How dare you, you guys? He might be on the spectrum? <laughs> he is in the greenhouse with his peas. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he is very definitely, like, on the way to proving evolution theory with peas. And like, and you guys are saying he's got no friends. He's got, they're right there. They're right there. Look, okay. If Philip <laughs> were filling out, <laughs> if Philip were filling out selection criteria right now, he would be able to say a lot under his, has the scientific backing for this job, but under interpersonal skills and ability to get along with other people, he would be like, no. But like, I just want you to understand that it actually speaks very deeply to what he wants in a wife, which is a pee. He wants... <laughs> Silent in a crevice? Silent, fertile. I don't know, I've lost it now, but like, yeah. Well, no, it works because it's he working. married the wrong pee the first time around, and now he's like upgrading to the better pee to see what happens. Yeah. One question, like two questions. <clears throat> Would you, based on his letters, chance disgrace... Because I don't think the letters were that outstanding. Okay, look. I mean, he said flowers. That was nice. The the letters are actually my what? The Featherington? Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> because things Eloise, as of page 30, things Eloise knows about Philip, presumably from the letters. His age, his marriage history, his hair colour, that he has all his teeth and How do you bring that up? That's my question, right? So that was the first time that I read that. That was my question. And that he's a baronet and a few other things, whatever. And then things that he knows about her, we later learn, also includes that she has all of her teeth. What kinky bullshit are they writing to each other about teeth? <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe it's a legitimate question. I just don't know how it came up. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was a joke. Like, haha, you know, oh, you, you want, we want to know what I look like? Well, I've got brown hair, blue eyes, and all my teeth, aren't I charming and witty and making it, I don't know. I, I, look, I, I, yeah. I agree with you, but Thank I you. say, I've said weird shit in dating apps before. So I, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, you know, like I accept that this is something that could have happened. Yeah. Of course, what they, what they do not discuss in their letters is the fact that he's a fucking dad. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. I feel like that should have come up before dentistry, but, yes. you know, you have already heard how I feel about Philip to begin with. So, yeah. <laughs> but also, if, if he's looking for someone to parent his children because he can't be bothered, you think he would mention that in the letter when he's trying to find a mother for his children? He doesn't even care if, the like, if this person is set up to succeed. And yet we're... we're you know, told he how much he cares about them. Like, uh, it's like he's blindfolded and he keeps walking into walls. Like, he's really quite incompetent. But the other thing is, this guy who can't communicate, who's a bit of an emotional dolt, apparently wins over all the Bridgerton brothers. 
By drinking with them. He drinks with them. I just don't buy that. Knowing boys, that sounded right. (laughs) For me, what happened sort of while reading it is that I, I went through phases of like, it was like, really didn't like it. And then somewhere around yeah. about like the yeah, halfway mark, maybe I was starting, I started to get into it and I was really on board with them. And then, mm. and then we hit that third quarter, which is when they get married. And I like, <laughs> I was done. I was like, and it is, it's the way that he talks to her. It's the way that it's the way that she's like, kind of by quite a few people actually, because Violet is also the, like, let's remember Violet is also someone who tells her to, like, stop expecting so much. That that scene about don't push really was hard for me because it reminded me of, you know, people have told me to be, like, less myself. Yeah. That was the thing. Like, it was as much as it made me sad, it was also one of those things where it resonated real hard. Like, mm. I sat there and I was like, oh, I've been Eloise. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I've been told to be less me. Like, yeah. so that someone... You're will, too much, know. you're too mm. intense, you're too... Yeah, yeah. And it's... Yeah, we're all Eloise, I think. But also, he did tell her she talks too much, and that's something we're told as a gender. Mm. I, think that, I think that's one of the things that Julia Quinn does so well as a writer, where, you know, I was like, you really, there were things that irritated the fuck out of me through this whole book and many times when I was not on board with the characters but there was there's still always a charming scene that will rope me back in again or they turn a phrase or there's something a little bit funny or there's this intense relatability that I mean that just keeps me coming back even though there were times when I was willing to just shut the book on Philip altogether but I, you know, I still wanted to know what would happen. I still wanted to know what Eloise was going to say next. I, I think mm. that Julia Quinn, even when she's not crafting a narrative that I'm particularly engaged in, can still write in a way that is really engaging. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I managed to get through this in a night. Oh, do you guys have a what the Featherington that you wanted to share? I have something that w- I want to give a big heart to something because I feel like I've been quite a grizzly guts. Um, the conversation between Anthony and Eloise when he tells her she's always a Bridgerton, even though he's basically saying you can't get out of this, there is no way out. I, I really liked that scene. Like Anthony effectively is most of their dad, not through choice, but and I, I feel like that's like you're never going to not be a Bridgerton and why that can come across as you there's expectations upon you it's also like you're always us you're always our mm. family you're always we will always be there for you we will always have Colin strip your pantry bare <laughs> like <laughs> we will always be absurdly competitive with sports like I, that was really heartwarming but what the Featherington the fact that there was so many, like, like the egregious injury to her eye became, like, was that their first kiss? Like, she, or was that the second? Anyway, that she has this major, like, bruising happening on her face and there's a smooch, I believe. I don't know, and she, like, smells like steak or something. Yeah, <laughs> not sexy. <laughs> what is the medical back backing behind putting meat on a bruise? Like, what is that? I've never actually looked into it, but it's it comes up all the time. Uh, yeah. It can't be pleasant. Like, it, she talks about it being sopping, like gooey and not smelling great. So I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to smooch her. I yeah. have always sort of suspected that the thing about putting a steak on a bruise doesn't really have any like medical backing but potentially helped because it's typically cold the thinking behind steak at least according to some so very exact is that the meat draws out water buildup which reduces swelling plus it's cold so rudy is correct Uh, Ah. kate do you have a what the featherington my what the Featherington moment, I sort of already touched on already because it was part of that conversation where she's like, here are some valid concerns I have about our relationship. And he's like, 
you can't have concerns because I'm happy for the first time ever. And also, I can't even remember the words that he used, but it was something like, I'm having a really good time after a super long dry spell. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what did they use in the Regency period for lube? Because I really hope that Eloise has some and that she is using a lot of it. Because the way he is talking, I am like, you are new to this and you better have something that is helping out because otherwise there is going to be chafing and you are going to be sore and that is unnecessary. I I think the one sort of dropped aspect of the narrative that I found quite interesting is Eloise was with her father when he passed away and um, they really didn't address how that's influenced how she lives her life I mean it's touched upon and then it's kind of dropped and I I think I would have really liked to see that evolve further but um, yeah we had to hear about it over and over again with um, Anthony but Eloise was there and it sort of just understood that she's somehow fine and emotionally whole and in a way that Anthony is not. I sincerely think that the reason that she's fine has to do with gender and age, though. She was younger and she clung to Violet at the time and Violet yeah. worked through it with her emotionally. Yeah, that, That's that, made quite um, clear. Holding her hand and talking about yeah. their father every night. Yeah, great parenting. <laughs> I would, I would suspect because we don't really get told, or we haven't really been told at any point. But I suspect that Anthony, being eighteen, and kind of thrust into this role as like head of the household because he's the oldest man, probably did a lot of like pushing down the feelings because men don't have feelings or men shouldn't have feelings. So I think that like because. Because Eloise was younger and a girl, she was allowed to have her feelings and work through it. Yeah. In a way yeah. that Anthony didn't really get to. Not sure. But it's, yeah, you're yeah. very right. Look, I am very, I'm very astute. It's true. It's so wise. <laughs> is there a particularly good reason why Eloise is not open to, to marrying outside the, the tone? Because she doesn't seem to ever consider it. When she like when she's reflecting on there being nobody of worth in London, she's really only talking about London society, and I felt like that was one of several differences about like if this story had been written now, I kind of wondered if she would be including working class people into her like I still think she's slightly materialistic if you think about her um deductions when she's in the estate for the first time about how everything's a bit threadbare and her need to like talk like get like clothes and stuff which could be an extension of her care for everybody as well I just don't think it would occur to her I don't think it was a judgment against her class or anything I just don't think it would have occurred to her oh no like yeah I agree like the the Bridgertons are the cream of the crop, right? And she would she would just never she would just never mix in company outside of the you know the top ten thousand. She's I don't know. It would be like asking why I don't marry somebody in I don't know Switzerland because I never go to Switzerland, so it's impossible to meet somebody from Switzerland. And whilst you were saying that, I remember the fact that Sophie was her ladies maid maid, and she doesn't have an issue with that. So that's curious. Rudy, that was a great question, Mm. actually. I honestly think it's not a matter of class warfare and just a matter of no interaction whatsoever. Oh, no, I mean, like, it was my my own thinking of class warfare that had prompted the thought. (laughs) Um... But it just, yeah, I kind of, I kept, I kept playing this game and it's probably not productive, but I kept <laughs> playing this mental game of if this book was written now, these are the things that would happen. These are the things that would change. And like, that was one of them. And the depiction of mental illness would have changed. I yeah. Think, I hope. I, I mean, I definitely do think, cause like, I think of, um, Alicia Rye's hate to want you. Which has mm. the heroine of that book has depression. And that is kind of the difference that it is someone with depression who gets to be 
the heroine of yeah. a romance novel. Like, Marina could have had a true love. There are other books, but that was one that kind of jumped to mind. And then, oh, my other... What was the second question? My other question, just in case you guys have theories on this. So, <laughs> we learn that Philip's brother was at Waterloo in 1815. And one of the reasons that he's at Waterloo, presumably, is because there is, like, an extra brother, so no big deal if he dies. Shrugs. fucked. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the Bridgertons have four boys in their family. <laughs> and one of, now. like, and, like, obviously, like, not Anthony, but is there a real, is there a particularly... Is there a particular reason why neither Benedict or Colin ever enlist? Well, draft dodgers. The Bridgertons are draft dodgers. Well, and I imagine they have enough money to support, like Anthony has enough money to support his brothers without them having to go off and take a commission somewhere. But yeah, it's interesting because realistically, uh, do we ever learn Philip's older brother's name? Probably. <laughs> Okay. Fucking hell. Sorry, guys. Now, Roger. So, Roger shouldn't have gone off to war because he was the heir. It should have been Philip. Like, no fa- no noble family would have sent off their heir to to Waterloo. Ex- uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and that's a very good valid question. Because I was, I was confused about whether, like, when, the, when it was kind of made clear that the reason that his brother had died was because he'd been at Waterloo, I started to be like, oh, Maybe Philip has always been the heir. It just was that his brother happened to be the favourite. It's not uncommon. I mean, there's so much in Philip's childhood that's... Inexplicable? Yeah. Oh, my God. How good. I've just come up with a an idea for a series of novels that features a time-travelling therapist who goes back into time. <laughs> 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 the the one I keep saying the one other and this is like my fourth one other is um <laughs> so sorry guys there is is something really interesting about the like the way that this book fetishizes motherhood and it's something mm. I'll admit it's something I've been thinking about on book thinger where we talk about the way that the way that parenthood but particularly motherhood impacts as far as work impacts as far as lifestyle like how very little patience other people have for like for mothers because you know like because it's such a (laughs) because it is a a it's a boring topic but it's also an unseen and unspoken topic like the isolation of it doesn't get talked about like all of that kind of stuff, and Kate, you probably have like <laughs> much better thoughts around this as like someone who's been as there. our token mother. <laughs> as our, yeah, as our token mother, Kate, you're a mother. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look. Well, see, this is the thing about Eloise becoming Violet that I keep banging on about the fetish. I think the word fetishization is really adapt in this particular situation because she loses Eloise and becomes mother. And that's part of the reason why Philip, like it's a huge part of the reason why Philip falls in love with her. It's a huge part of her finding her like goals in life. Almost like her purpose is all of a sudden clear. It's to be a mother and raise Oliver and Amanda upright and, I yeah there's a lot of subsumation of who you are as a person into who you are as a mother that I find particularly tricky to deal with as somebody who is a much better mother when I have the space and opportunity to be myself um and I find that kind of discussion really interesting because it's pitted against any other types of motherhood. And I think this is the thing that comes out an awful lot when we start talking about the depictions of motherhood is that there is one way to be a good mother and that your way is necessarily in competition with somebody else's way of being a good mother that I think is 
very gendered. And I think it's designed to distract from actual real issues with being a parent in today's society and being a woman that, you know, or rather being somebody with a uterus that has gone ahead and used it for reproductive purposes. Um, but I mean, this is a huge conversation, but yeah, I mean, Eloise totally went from being Eloise, the person to Eloise, the mother through the course of the novel. Some of the really kind of concrete ways that we say it is in that she's discouraged from talking. She stops writing letters. I realize that we only are actually experiencing her life in about like probably about two weeks total. Um, mm. But this is, you know, she is someone who wrote letters to different people for hours each day. And all of a sudden she's not writing to anyone anywhere. It's like she's, almost they've depicted her letter writing as searching for her family. Mm. And she's also And she found it, so everyone else is all gone. All of those things that made her like quite mm. a nuanced and interesting character start to get sort of peeled away because now she's a mum. Now she's mm. got she's got these twins and a husband to occupy her time and her thoughts and her like her heart. So, you know, what does she need? all of these other things for maybe that's unfair like maybe maybe there are other people who are reading this like who read Sir Philip and just went like like all in but it is interesting because she's depicted throughout this whole novel as not being able to sit still and not being able to like concentrate on something but in order to have sat and written letters for hours at a time like she must have been able to sit still at a time so clearly she can sit still when she's intellectually engaged in what she's doing and she is supposed to then find that intellectual stimulation in raising kids and I mean oh I don't want to get down on parenting <laughs> right now but I'm going to tell you that the number one thing about being a parent that you learn very quickly is that your children are actually super boring and being a parent is actually really <laughs> tedious and like there are moments that make it worthwhile of course there are but the like day-to-day -day drudgery of dealing with somebody who can't ask questions or you know can't tell you what they're thinking or you know only cares about Bluey and what happened on Bluey and just wants to repeat oh, like, all I'm invested in Bluey, Bluey as well. well I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to yeah. hear the episode recited to me eight million times. I got it the first time right. My sister, so I, I'm a, I, I love my nieces to be. <laughs> I love giving them back. The thing my sister said to me really early on is she's like, I love my girls but I need to use more of my brain. Yeah. And so she went back to work so she could have adult conversations. So she could be strategic in a non-children's sense. And that's, you know, for a lot of people will judge that. And that's also not to say live, like being an at home mother is not using your brain and all these other things, but she was so terrified to say that to me. Yeah. <laughs> she thought I would judge. And, it's really it's um, hard. But I mean, yeah. as, as Rudy said, we only see Eloise for two weeks. So maybe Eloise has been using her, using up her intellectual energy with trying to solve the problems of Philip and Oliver and Amanda. And once those problems are solved and a suitable new governess is hired, then she'll go back to being able to engage with what she used to engage with outside. And, you know, this is very slice of life for Eloise. So it's possible. I would agree to all of that, except the fact that she's super close with Penelope. That's been established since um, the Duke and I, book number one. You think she would be resuming letter writing at some point with Penelope mm. like, on a minimal level. And, like, her reaction to finding out, like, Violet thought she was, like, kidnapped and there was going to be a ransom... Like, it doesn't feel like it truly connected as a character beat, like, throughout. Like, it sort of shifts a lot. And I get that she was quite, she wasn't really acknowledging her hurt in Penelope marrying Colin. <laughs> Whether she was crushing on Penelope or jealous that Penelope had married, whatever. But I think it's weird that she didn't write to 
Penelope at some point during that two weeks. Now it's time for something we call What Would Damry Do? I just accepted a position with a super competent, badass surgeon single mother. She turns me on hard. Should I resign? BD McTattoo. <laughs> so you're just throwing away the concept of using the like. <laughs> There's a format, Adele. <laughs> That letter comes from. It's okay. No. So that letter comes from who? (laughs) That is by Rafe or Raphael from Rebecca Weatherspoon's Rafe, a buff male nanny story, the first in its series. I mean, honestly, I think Lady Danbury would be like, you know, get it, son. If you're both able to act like adults in this situation and you're both there for it, then. Yeah, go ahead and mix business with pleasure as long as you can separate them back out again when it needs to happen. I think that Lady Danbury would be super down for a hot male governess. Would he be a governess? I'm going to call him uh, a governess, um, yes. He's a governess. A a male governess that likes picking up his woman. It's competence, porn, child-rearing awesomeness in the form of a gladiatorial tattooed bearded hunk of man meat who looks after two very precocious twin girls it's reassuring it's soothing they are adults there is no stupid misunderstandings and it's all very lovely and it's a novella so you can read it in one night so you're welcome i think the thing that i am loving in 2020 is competence competent characters like give me all the competency porn because I find reading about people who do not have their shit together so anxiety inducing right now there is too much going on in the world for me to have like internal conflict at all give me all of the external conflicts with people who know how to behave because oh it's just it's like soft velvet around my brain That's all for this episode of What Would Danbury Do? We'll be back in a fortnight with When He Was Wicked. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at BridgertonPod or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of the Gadigal, Wurundjeri, and Boonwurrung people and edited by audio producer Rudy Bremer on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening and remember, WWDD.